London's brightest and bashiest radio station, Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm your host, Ash Sarker, at IO Caesar, if that's your kink. And today I'm here with writer, journalist and all-around Banff, Rennie Edo-Lodge. Thanks so much for coming. Hello, thanks for having me. I seem to recall that you were on the show exactly a year ago to yes, the day. exactly a year ago, which is so playing strange. Playing off-com bingo around a yes. certain pig-related political scandal indeed, that I'm sure indeed. we've all forgotten. Yes. <laughs> um, and also joining me today as well, Kasim, journalist, activist and Navarra Media special contributor, which just means that they're particularly beloved by the Navarra Media crew. Um, as always, you can tweet along using the hashtag NavarraFM. You can harangue the organisation as a whole at Navarra Media and tweet at our guests at WellQ and at Rennie Rennie, correct? Yep. Cool. So thanks for coming. And um, yeah, to kick off, I guess I thought I'd explain what one of the prompts for today was. Um, when we were crowdsourcing ideas for this season of Navarra FM over the summer, someone on social media suggested that me and Whale discuss political blackness because it's something that we would disagree on. I was a bit thrown by that because I was like, oh, Jesus, are we going to disagree on this? Um, that's the first I've heard of it. Um and we talked it over, it turns out we don't really disagree, um, because, spoiler alert, I don't really think that political blackness, i.e. the notion that anyone who experiences racism is politically black, regardless of whether or not they're part of the African diaspora, is a particularly useful idea at this juncture of history. But in a somewhat troll-like fashion, I've taken this as an opportunity to open up a discussion on the politics of blackness with two thinkers, writers, who I'm personally constantly learning from. So why now? Why is it so pressing to discuss this at this time in this place? Well, as part of an ongoing interest that we have at Navarra, looking at race as a powerful shaper of politics I'd say this is as powerful as it's ever been, and it's only getting more intense. Um, Brexit happened in part because 52% of the UK decided that they feared immigration more than economic instability, right? And the Lord Ashcroft polls that came out shortly after the, after the result showed that the Leave campaign very effectively mobilised and consolidated racist sentiments that were already there. So about 80% of people thought who thought that multiculturalism was a bad thing, i.e. the very existence of racial and cultural others in our society is a bad thing, voted Brexit. And the Leave voters who clamour for an Australian-style points-based system don't seem to be shaken by the revelations of, say, the Nauru files, right, cataloguing atrocities, particularly against children at Australia's offshore immigration detention facility. So there's a real appetite for this stuff that I think requires some careful thought and analysis. And you'll also have a hard time convincing me that Trump's campaign is anything other than identity politics. Um, and when you contrast his rhetoric to some of the stuff coming from prominent politicians in Europe, so say former um, UMP, I mean, they're now called Les Republicans, right? Um, former UMP politicians like Sarkozy, like Nadine Murano, it starts to look less absurd and more terrifying. So last year, Nadine Murano said that um, France is a country of the white race. Just this week, Sarkozy said, if you want to become French, you speak French, you live like the French. We will no longer settle for integration. That does not work. We will require assimilation. Once you become French, your ancestors are the Gauls. 
you will say, I love France, I learned the history of France, I see myself as French. So here we've got, on the one hand, this political mobilisation of whiteness, which throws up the question of how are we to read blackness as both political phenomenon and politicised experience? This is a question I cannot really answer because I'm not politically black. And this is what I want to get into today, by looking closely at the theoretical, historical and artistic lineages embedded in how we talk about race. Um, So, for instance, we talk a lot about anti-blackness, but often don't unpick what that means. We talk about um, anti-blackness as the, like, formative coordinate of racism and let's press on that a bit so how do we make sense of say the recent spate of horrific attacks on polish people since the referendum how do we understand that in relation to racism how do we think about the borders crisis how do we think about how the refugee is racialized at least in the popular imagination differently from the economic migrant and the asylum seeker even kind of straddles both sometimes in terms of how it's um, mobilised in uh, popular discourse. And I guess more concretely, we should talk about the current ongoing urban uprisings in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, after the killing of Keith Lamont Scott. Um, and it would be worth contextualising this again within the within the politics of blackness, if not political blackness. So um, Governor Pat McCrory, who used to be the mayor of Charlotte, targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision precision with the 2013 voter suppression bill. And when the highest court in the land declared that law intentionally racist, he made no apology. In fact, doubled down on using the the state board of elections to limit the number of polling places in areas where African-Americans generally vote. So when we're talking about the politics of blackness, we're also talking about black people in the political process, the exclusions within that. So I'm going to throw it over to our guests because I'm sure that you're as keen to hear from them as I am. So I want to start with you, Rennie. Um, Number one, I guess, what do you think about this question of political blackness, whether or not it's a useful idea? And the second is, is it really necessary to pin down precisely what we mean by blackness in order to tackle racism? Okay, so... What do I think of political blackness? Well, so, as you know, I'm in the process of writing a book specifically about race and racism in Britain. Um, And in that, I've been doing a lot of research, going through the archives, you know, trying to find out this act and that act and looking at um, organisations that also fought back against state racism. And so you can sort of clearly see in the 70s and 80s that people were using the term black I mean, they weren't saying political blackness in the way that we are saying it now, but it was more like black, basically to mean you're not white. And that was in... So anybody who wasn't white, you were refer... In organising, in anti-racist organising, it was like, okay, so they're black. And that was kind of like a solidarity thing from often people whose lineage was, you know, from countries that had been colonised by the British Empire, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So sometimes going through that... um, what's it called, going through all of those things, like it's kind of hard to tell, okay, was this person like actually African or Caribbean or were they something else? It's hard to tell. But what I can see is that what happened is that at that moment in time is that it um, provided a good, like, what's it called, um, a good understanding base for people to, to work alongside each other and um, did some did some really interesting and, and useful things that I think that we're sort of benefit, benefiting from today. Um, so now I think that people 
because those activists, uh, a lot of them have ended up essentially going back home, et cetera, et cetera. Those people who are still in England are, are um, you know, they're in their perhaps 50s and 60s. They're less uh, involved in things now. So it's sort of fallen out of, what's it called? Fallen out of use. And so... Everybody who isn't white doesn't immediately, uh, what's the word, like identify with it. And so in that case, I feel like if people can't immediately identify with it, then it's not a very useful organising tool anymore. But I recognise um, the use that it's had. So in that respect, this sort of like groundswell of what's it called, like rejection for the term, I, I don't really get because it's not really in wide use like at the moment you know what I mean like I don't really understand the groundswell of rejection because I just don't feel like it's in wide use like it would be less less than a dozen people who are using the term um and then in terms of your other question in terms of I've forgotten your other question now but um I think that I would rather use a term that wasn't non-white to describe people who aren't white because Non-white, I feel, has a thousand more issues <laughs> in terms of like, um, so people, why do we have to divide ourselves against a dominant a dominant force? There's something about a lacking thing there. So I would call myself politically black 10 times, you know, over the calling myself non-white or calling anybody who isn't white non-white. So... Yeah, I think that the that anti-racist history that you kind of uh, point to is quite interesting and doesn't seem to come up so much in the discussions around, well, what is political blackness and what, it's, what is its relevance in terms of organising and, and, and identifying today. Um, and I guess one of the places where you do see political blackness kind of remain is within like the trade union and student union movements hmm. where some unions still use this definition for their black caucuses um, rather than saying they're black and minority ethnic caucuses or liberation campaigns it's um, black meaning the kind of politically black anyone who isn't white anyone who suffers uh, racism uh, is kind of subsumed under that um, I think it's interesting that those institutions are the ones where it comes up the most because they're they're ones with a kind of a sense of memory that perhaps has been lost in a lot of the ways that we organise um, around racism. So kind of, I don't know, various things that you, we might point to in terms of kind of creating that loss of memory, just the kind of subsumption of black and uh, minority ethnic um organizing into kind of institutions like the Labour Party, say, or the, the GLC, um, and how we kind of got a more um, respectable form of anti-racist organizing, which meant that a lot of the kind of grassroots stuff dies, dies away and isn't kind of passed down through um, families or communities because it's now being done by someone else who's a professional at doing it. Um, we might also point to the complete decimation of various kind of... Um, archival methods or um, practices of creating history within our communities that have uh, been cut away or simply didn't have people to be passed on to and so no longer exists for activists coming up. Um, and uh, so those are a couple of things which might 
go against the idea of having an institutional memory, but that seems to exist in trade unions and student unions mm. where you see the uh, where you see political blackness still being used. Uh, and I think that's an important thing, but then you have to ask the question of um, have those same things that have eroded the use of political blackness outside um, those institutions uh, also point to the fact that those institutions haven't been able to move on in a, in the same way. They haven't uh, have been kind of forced to fall into orthodoxies of how we do political organizing around race, which... Um, aren't really open to questioning, well, is political blackness or is, the, is using black in this kind of political way um, one that's still useful? And I guess I think, I think that's a, a conversation to be had. For me, political blackness is um, it's an interesting one. I kind of, like, I didn't quite understand when I went to, um, or when I met, activists from other kind of parts of the world, black activists from other parts of the world, their utter shock at the idea of political blackness. I mean, you can have a kind of uh, conception here of how it comes across maybe a bit weird in certain certain circumstances, uh, especially when it's used simply as an identity thing and then the politics is stripped out. Um, Mm. But when activists from other parts of the world uh, kind of come across Britain's political blackness and I I just don't understand this. I've never come across anything like this before. Uh, I find it very weird. And it's the fact that kind of... I think it points to perhaps a... Both, both a usefulness in terms of well, what solidarity has been created between communities who all have to fight racism um, and also a kind of a lacking movement that has not been able to ask questions of itself and why it still deploys these like artifacts of language. I mean, that's the thing, is that it's such a British phenomenon. So mm. when we had um, Sherelle Brown, an amazing um, an amazing activist with the Movement for Black Lives, uh, on just before the summer break, um, and I was saying, hey, so what do you think about political blackness? She was just like, that is not a thing in America. I, you know, and she um, said in her, like, characteristically empathetic... Um, thoughtful and, and listening way of just like I, I came here, I heard about it, and I was expected to have an opinion on it, and I can't because mm. it just doesn't exist in the same way. And I think um, returning to your point about trade unions, whale, I think the fact that political blackness still exists in those spaces also speaks to the fact that there was whole scale widespread resistance to incorporating what we would now call people of colour, and that's the term that I also want to unpick a bit over the show, um, incorporating people of colour, people who were not white, into the trade union movement. Like my grandmother, my mother were part of that. And so when they were talking about excluding black people at that point, you couldn't rock up and be like, I'm actually Gujarati. That wasn't um, an option available to you. So that was a response to a particular kind of racism at that time and then I guess following on from that is if we're saying that this is um, a phenomenon which is very much uh, geographically and historically contingent why do you think that is do you think it's speaking to the nature of the British colonial project the centrality of uh, the British colonies in South Asia to the British sense of self here and do you think that the 
And I think, rightly so, the criticisms that have come from many people who who identify as black, saying that what this does is erase um, the many ways in which many South Asians benefited socially and economically from um, the oppression of black people. Do you think that the response to that has been to import language and political ideas from the states in which blackness is so much more foundational to that understanding of racism. Do you think that's even yes, a I, useful strategy? I mean, we are importing terms from the States. And, you know, the, I think the reason why you're seeing black as a, as a political term being used in trade unions is because they're the only legacy organisations that we have today in Britain that still have roots in, you know, 80s radical activism. Do you know how hard it's been for me researching this book, literally to find any documentation anywhere of stuff that was happening in the 70s and 80s amongst black people, resistance stuff. It's been so hard, so hard, to the extent that, you know, me leaving through archive stuff, even at the black cultural archives it's, itself, trying to find about stuff like black resistance to the to police brutality, most of it was written by the police. You know, there's that saying, you know, history was written by, history is written by the winners. And I just think it's really interesting that some of the big names at that time who were organising are now in politics and government and they're, they're all white <laughs> and all the people who were, weren't white who were doing all of that anti-racist activism are really hard to track down, really hard to find. Um, I've been having to pull in favours here, there and everywhere. So a part of it is the reason why people are not identifying with that term in this day and age is because there was no official documentation and the reason why there was no official documentation outside of a trade union is because there was some institutional racism there happening which meant that people could not document their their experiences their lived experiences so people look to the states because the states has a a much more um entrenched tradition of um you know historically back universities and colleges um you know you're seeing there's always been a culture of black writers writing to the rising to the top there in a way that we don't have in this country. And even now, you know, it blows my mind that the last person who I can think of who was, you know, ha- having a public profile talking about institutional and state racism in this country was like Stuart Hall. Do you know? Like, so that's a real, I think that's the reason why we're seeing people, lots of us, including myself, looking to the States for, um, for the terminology to describe ourselves and our experience. Um, And so, you know, we spoke about this earlier, but I am a bit suspicious of a wholesale rejection of something that's specifically British from British people when we're so welcoming to this American stuff. Like, no shade to the American movements. They're doing amazing things, but we could really do with knowing what on earth has been happening, you know, with us for the last 30 years. Um, And that's... Also, not easy because it's really, really hard to find, like, really, really hard to find. And some this, the stuff that was written has been written in very, like, academic-y sort of language. So there's a, that, that extra barrier there, I suppose. So the imported American stuff, it's got its pros and its cons. And that's all I can say on that. Because also, I know that you've organised both in the States and in the UK. I mean, you've, you did stuff with Black Lives Matter in the States and you've also been... Um, a spokesperson for Black Lives Matter UK. So how how, how did the two compare for you, Whale? Um, I mean, actually, in I think one of the one of the things that was uh, kind of quite 
cool to see in the in the US was that when when we did this like Black Lives Matter tour with kind of families from the UK who had people killed by um, the in the state here, um, and going over to California to kind of speak with other families there. The, the families that the BLM organizers were working with were not all um, exclusively um, black families. They're, uh, they're, the, the California, is, uh, in particular, has big uh, Latinx, um, Latina, Latino population, um, and that that was part of the organizing. But for Black Lives Matter, the question is, well, what, what is our starting point? Our starting point is the question of black life and how this shapes uh, the ability to kill any human being in this society, really. Um, if we're going to talk about law enforcement violence against the most kind of um, most attacked black people in our society, then we're talking about law enforcement violence in its totality. Uh, and I think that's been a part of what's um, been kind of happening here in the UK as well in terms of Black Lives Matter and the importance for Black Lives Matter in the UK of black leadership. And I mean, there was a whole kind of controversy about white people um, and airports and whatnot that um, I think points to the fact that we find black leadership in anti-racist spaces uh, in the UK, something just very hard to fathom, which is not the case in the US. I mean, the US black leadership within their own movements is the given, uh, which in parts of the history of anti-racist organizing here, and especially recent history after kind of institutionalization of various uh, kind of uh, anti-racist movements and initiatives uh, hasn't always been black-led. And I guess part, uh, perhaps part of the concern comes about those white people on the tarmac, even though the whole thing was black-led, black-organised, hypothetically. Um, all the narrative was created by black people. Hypothetically, um, it stands to reason if anybody's going to be at risk of arrest, why not make it white people? <laughs> well, preci well, precisely. But then you get, but but then I think that there is also this uh, constant worry for people in their minds here in the UK that oh, is this another thing that's being led by white people? I don't think that's true of Black Lives Matter in the UK whatsoever. Uh, well, I know it's, I know it not to be true, but um, perhaps can see where that um, where that worry comes from. And so I guess, like, to look at Black Lives Matter UK, one of the things that um, they've come under fire for is for trying to bring together too many issues, too many causes. So starting with the issue of racialized police violence and the lack of accountability, moving on to uh, the experience of everyday street racism, moving on to economic inequalities, and then climate change, which many struggled to even accept was an issue that you can approach through race. And... I think underpinning uh, the BLM UK approach, and th this is the thing, that's a it's a very loose, like, um, it isn't ideologically fixed. It is fundamentally about people who want to come together to do something, who share ideas on how to do it, but it's certainly not you sign up to um, a particular, uh, shall we say, a very prescriptive ideology. Like, there's room for discussion within that. But I guess underpinning the understanding of racism as it has been articulated through actions has been um, this idea that at the heart of racism, racism as a global phenomenon, is 
the universality of anti-blackness. And so this is the thing that, um, you know, I'd like to throw out to you. It's, um, this is Jared Sexton quoting Lewis Gordon, which is, we live in a world structured by the twin axioms of white superiority and black inferiority, of white existence and black non-existence, a world structured by a negative categorical imperative. Above all, don't be black. So how true do you think this is in terms of understanding racism? How central do you think anti-blackness is? Do you think that um, do you think that any attempt to look at racism without anti-blackness being at the heart of it isn't is itself a form of anti-blackness, a form of erasure, or do you think it's necessary to look at how the way things are changing, thinking about attacks on Eastern Europeans post-referendum or Islamophobia or even uh, the mass displacement of people through climate change in the Middle East and South Asia. I mean, how do we um, grapple with these I things? I think it is It's safe to say that anti-blackness is the root of all racism. Yes, that's something I categori categorically agree on. Um, I think in a broad context, we can then see how people are racialized, made black. You c there are d certainly communities, I think particularly in Britain, who have moved closer to blackness and then moved out of it again like so we can talk about irish people um and how um they have been racialized in the past in the same way that we can talk about how polish and lithuanian people and eastern european people are being racialized currently um but i think anti-blackness is a very important thing to continue thinking about because um, there is nothing so viscerally the opposite of whiteness as having black skin, right? So, um, yeah, I think that in terms of... But I would be careful to, you know, keep my analysis nuanced and not 100% focus on anti-blackness. I think it's possible to do both. Um, and the reason why I think I need to keep it nuanced is because... so. You know, the 2011 census showed that um, the mixed race is like the fastest growing ethnicity in Britain currently. And um, the, there's projections that by 2066, um, I think white people are going to be a minority in Britain. That's a projection from some Oxbridge academic that the BNP are very worried about. But we have this situation where, and I come from a position where my brother and sister are mixed race so it's an issue very close to my heart um that that there are ways sometimes biologically sometimes not biologically where you can be tinged with blackness and I, like for me my analysis my work is about i think that racism is a white problem i'm writing about whiteness here um so while i recognize the nuances and intricacies and in how one can be racialized I think like what I'm focusing on is the ra who's doing the racialization like that's that's what I try to focus on and and so as a sister of uh, two mixed race people I feel very it doesn't feel right to me to be saying oh you know you may not be black enough I feel like there's a status quo that might already be doing that to my brother and sister I don't want to contribute to it I think for me, there's um, kind of two two parts to this um, in that I can't help but have anti-blackness as the absolute determinant of my life. Um, 
and for and for me for me in that sense and on a like very personal level and in terms of who, who is around me and the kind of what i recognize as what i'm going through and what the people around me are going through anti-blackness is the determining factor but i also feel that in our society in this raced society the operative logic is also anti-blackness and that we have a um a kind of a a way of producing race in this world which seems to always lead to um blackness being at the bottom of it um and in that sense i think that both my personal fight and a wider political one has to be one that challenges anti-blackness in our society um and that's not to say that um we don't also work against um other forms of racism but the point then becomes that well if you're working against other forms of racism and you're not talking about anti-blackness then you you have no hope in getting rid of racism in this society for me um and then i think we have to kind of talk a bit about well what is the what are the particularities of both how racism is experienced and how it kind of has this operative um way of working in the world in a more kind of structural level and the example that ash kind of pointed to in terms of political blackness earlier of um well there is this shared colonial history in britain um and kind of political blackness is born out of um partly that solidarity but i think is also born out of recognizing the particularities and the differences of how people were treated in incoming to this country mm. how there was a certain um we we might we might have all faced the kind of grand succession of immigration acts which um impacted on our families being able to come to this country but there was a st- strange thing at play which meant that black people who came to the uh to britain became the muggers became this type of uh, that was in uh, criminalized uh and not in the same way as their south asian counterparts were uh and i think in a in a in a kind of interesting way uh, political blackness actually was a riposte to that in saying um what no i if you if you want to kind of create hierarchies amongst us if whiteness wants to create hi- hierarchies amongst us we reject that um that c- kind of moment of rejection however i think again as a lot of things in anti-racist organizing in the uk has again been lost uh and we're left with a kind of a mode of org- organizing which sees itself as batting racism but never seems to be talking about anti-blackness. Um so we've reached the halfway point of the show you are listening to Navara FM I'm Ash Sarka with Welkism and Rennie Edo Lodge and today the topic is it's political blackness gone mad. I've just always wanted to name a show that <laughs> and I thought like this will be the this will be um my excuse. I'm really glad that we've reached this point where we're um really integrating talking about experience and theory and there's not this opposition between um here is how i live here is how i navigate the world and here is how i uh create a context for that through an understanding of history and understanding of politics i i often feel that when it comes to talking about racism you're pigeonholed into one of two things is that either you go for high theory 
and you lose you use a language that like most people can't recognize as part of their daily life or it becomes so uh mediated through the eye and the subjective that actually there's a lot that goes unquestioned and um one of the things that i i guess i want to throw out is that um when we're deconstructing race i.e looking at how it is not a uh biological fact or an, ine- an inevitable social process is one that is engendered through institutions, reproduced through culture. Um, do we turn inwards too much? Are we always trying to deconstruct the marginalised position as opposed to the dominant one? But then if we turn our like deconstructing ray guns onto the position of dominance, in this case, whiteness... Is there some like unquestioning, unquestioning essentialism, like you know, Spivak calls this strategic essentialism. Uh, to quote a very good friend of mine, I see a lot of essentialism and not that much strategy um, a lot of the time. Um, how how do you um, balance those two things? The need to, um, I guess, question, like to speak truth to power, but also to look at the way in which we reproduce oppressive racial taxonomies through articulating our own experience. That's a question I want to throw out. Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I suppose what, what you just said in terms of uh, what side of the binary to deconstruct, uh, I feel very much on the side of I choose to deconstruct whiteness uh, in this in this circumstance um, because I really feel like that's the problem. <laughs> like, I really feel like whiteness is a problem here that's pathologizing us all and I would like it to stop so that's what I'm going to try and do um, and and in terms of uh, I don't know being deterministic about whiteness I feel like if white people feel offended or perhaps generalize then maybe it'd be good you know a taste of <laughs> one's own medicine do you know what I mean like so white people hate it when you call them the name they invented for themselves hmm and and the reason why I think it's really, really super important, and I bring up this, like, mixed race people as fast as growing, like, racial demographic in this country at the moment, is, be- is because, like, that means that, that at the moment, white people are giving birth to black people. Like, because if if you are mixed race, you are with something other than white, you are immediately racialized. And so like, I feel like this conversation is perhaps more urgent than ever because it's creating very difficult situations in families in which a child can be born in a family that cannot even identify with a racism a child might be on the receiving end of. Hold that thought because I really want to come back to it um, on the issue of uh, whiteness, like producing blackness through like actual reproduction. I really want to come back to this. Um, I think that the, we have to see um, essentialism as something that's kind of produced. So that like naturalizing of racial um, categories is one that's itself not natural right um it has a it's a there's a process that is gone through and i think that process is white supremacy and whiteness um it's the it's i mean i got slated for kind of mentioning this on the 
Guardian video, but it's Immanuel Kant. It's all of these Enlightenment thinkers who did these grand taxonomies of what race is. Uh, and that, it's a grand kind of intellectual project to say that there is this separation. And it's one that um, in in being so tied to kind of the Enlightenment is really like absolutely embedded in the way that we think. Uh, and that it means that there's this constant turn towards um, essentializing, which exists as a risk even for us as ourselves, uh, as black people wanting to organize, as kind of seeing our, and the aspects of our blackness as something that is natural to us rather than something that was created by the the racism, the oppression that we have faced for centuries. Um, and it's created by the constant, uh, the the legal kind of determinants of our lives, the, the criminalization of black people, the borders that keep black people out of certain uh, parts of the world, the constant policing of black lives uh, and the ending of black lives through legal um, means. It's also um, kind of created by the, the economics of our poverty, our lack of housing, our lack of employment and the how all of these things also again seem to lead to the end of black life uh, and what's essentialized is really our kind of constant non uh, our constant ability to be killed really uh, blackness is essentialized as our disposability and our um, having never really been human and therefore being able to be killed and my kind of what then goes against that for me um, is well, well. I'm, my blackness is not um, essential to me, but it is existential. It's a question of my being in this world, and it's a question. And I think that kind of way of thinking about it brings in exactly this kind of like oscillation that you, uh, Rennie and Ash, are talking about between. Well, is it the? Is it? does it lie on the side of whiteness or does it lie on the side of my experience? Does it lie on the side of the structure or does it lie on the side of my um, having to navigate that structure? Well, I, actually, it's kind of, it's precisely that being forced to move between the two. Yeah, and I would like to quickly just add in here. Um, so there's this amazing um, vegan black feminist writer and speaker. Her name is Afko, A-P-H, KO, and she's fantastic. She's going to be in London next month, actually, so she goes see her speak. But she did a fantastic, mind-blowing talk that you can find on YouTube about um, being on the border of the animal and human divide, and it's about anti-blackness and animal cruelty in particular. And um, she, you know, explained the reason why she's she's vegan and trace it back to some really deep brutalization of uh, black bodies and how actually you can't talk about, you know, the stuff that Black Lives Matter in the US, she's American, is talking about in terms of um, black people being shot on the street like animals, like dogs. Like there's, that forces you into a critical, critical position about animal cruelty. And it completely and utterly blew my mind. Um, and I think that that's something that's really important to consider when it comes uh, to to anti-blackness and you said it yourself you know not human and that's something that I think that we we really really have to consider and 
And I know the vegans have a bad name because they're often very white and racist. <laughs> but uh, her work is really fantastic. So just wanted to signal boost You know, I will, I will take her to check it out. And I think like at the heart of what we're talking about here is just the centrality of um, blackness as antithetical to the category of the citizen, antithetical to mm-hmm. the category of the human. And this is coming back to the kind of enlightenment thought that you were talking about. Well, I also don't understand why you got slated for bringing it up in that Guardian video because I thought like that was it's such a mic drop moment hating. oh I was so into it like I just love that you went full theory troll and like it was also like error 404 lie not found <laughs> um and again I keep returning to Jared Sexton on this but um for, for Sexton it is critical to acknowledge that racial slavery was absolutely foundational to modernity, right? So to the categories of freedom, of the idea of inalienable rights and personhood. Um, The paradigmatic political figure that underpins all that is that of the slave. And um, one of the things that uh, we need to say is that looking at slavery as that um, foundational underpinning is to ask the question, what is the world that slavery made possible? And that's the way in which we understand racism as a contemporary shaper of global politics that also finds purchase in such locally specific ways. And this, okay, this is like a total theory bro question. I mean, okay, theory cis question, Um, which is Sexton and other theorists have positioned the slave as like the figure of um, modernity, right? The thing that underpins everything. Whereas Agamben, of course, talks about the refugee, which in the current political climate around the borders crisis, the thousands upon thousands um, drowning in the med, if you look at the breakdown by known countries of origin, actually um, most are from African countries, right? And it's interesting that so often black people are not considered to be refugees, but economic migrants. Um do you, do you think there's any reconciling between this figure of like the slave and the refugee as being those excluded from humanity? Do you think that actually there's an unacknowledged blackness in that figure of the refugee? Or do you think that this is a point of um a point at which our understanding of racism and how it functions starts to come apart a bit? I think for me that they they are the same person. These two figures are the same person in that what kind of defines them is their relationship to um, this current society and it, their relationship to um, the 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 brutal, the brutal violence of a state which says that um, it's able to kill you in the name of a wider order uh, and therefore makes you a, a kind of a person who is outside of that order and someone who's um, other to it and also by a kind of an economic mode which constantly needs to take up human work and activity to um, to siphon off its ability to produce value um, in order to create profit for um, 
a certain group of people and then that same economic mode being one that says well actually oh there are huge amounts of people who are surplus to me and again that they are outside of my um outside of my bounds and that they are other to me and they are the huge amounts of people who are um unemployed and never will be employed um in the global south and uh, around the west too um I think that those two figures um, have to be seen as like structurally the same, but then there's also a power to doing precisely what you're doing, Ash, and pointing out that, um, well, is there a moment of blackness in the refugee um, in in this time when that's completely ignored? A lot of the, a lot of uh, in a lot of the kind of um, reportage and discussion about well actually what is this refugee crisis that supposedly Europe alone is facing when most of the countries taking in refugees uh, globally are to be found in Africa and if not in Africa in the global south again um, I th and one of the things that uh, I thought really brought together this figure of the slave and the figure of the refugee is this quote from uh, Fred Moten in The Case of Blackness, which was something I was reading before doing the show today, which is, what's at stake is fugitive movement in and out of the frame, bar, whatever externally imposed social logic, a movement of escape, the stealth of the stolen that can be said to break every enclosure. The fugitive movement is stolen life and its relation to law is reducible neither to simple interdiction nor bare transgression. And, um, I, I mean, I, this is why I've always loved Fred Moten's work. There's a poetry and a lyricism that uh, permeates every single line of his theory, and I just find it so beautiful and pleasurable to read, even though, you know, really what we're talking about is uh, an analysis of the conditions that mean that some people do not have the right to live. Um and I think that looking at this issue of a uh, fugitive movement, and you know, this is also kind of a model for emancipation, so that you steal life in spite of everything else, is also a good way for thinking about irregular migration. Um, I, met, I met up with a friend this week who uh, does work with migrants in Sicily, and I was like, yeah, so you know, what do you think about um, people arguing about do you use refugee or do you use, use the word migrant? These are judgments made by the state, and. Um, he checked me on it and he was like, what you need to understand is that people do not leave, say, Gambia or Eritrea to become asylum seekers in Europe, right? They do not cross the water to become asylum seekers. They do not navigate Libya, which is a total mess. And one of the things that is often erased in talking about Libya is the massacres of black Africans that followed the fall of Gaddafi. Um, people don't do that to become asylum seekers. It's the fact that normal modes of transportation, normal travel is so restricted that they must cross the water, that they must cross Libya, that is that creates the category of the asylum seeker. And that was a flip that like really changed my thinking of it. I don't know what you guys think of that. I mean, but... just, just quickly, this is precisely what Black Lives Matter UK was saying in that protest at City Airport, right, where... There's a, 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 we live in a world where there are going to be 200 million um, 
so-called climate refugees and not to create yet another category of like, well, this is a legitimate type of refugee, but um, refugees, who, uh, people who have to be displaced because of what we're doing to the climate uh, by 2020, there will be 200 million. And um, yet countries like the UK, who are completely... Um, invulnerable, the least vulnerable within society, and yet the most uh, kind of, one of the biggest contributors to that, uh, are allowed to have people who earn 136,000 euros a year fly from their own private little airport in the middle of Newham. Um, whilst, again, we just, we have huge amounts of people who are displaced um, and trying to move around the world who are forced to do that in a way that is highly likely they will die uh, and it's just not possible for them to access this mode of travel and what what would it be like if we were a world who thought that planes weren't for going to your business meeting in brussels so you, um in time to be able to return for i don't know playing golf with your city friends um but rather being able to move in a way that's actually kind of takes into account the needs of life as on, as a whole in this in this world hmm. yeah definitely and i and obviously those around the the positioning of people in the around the world in terms of who lives in who lives in essentially inhospitable places and who doesn't is of course racialized um, so we've got about 12 minutes left. You're listening to Navara FM on It's Political Blackness Gone Mad. And so to return to this point um, about people with mixed heritage and like how do we uh, move away from a, say, policed notion of blackness um, towards something that is able to account for the myriad experiences like within blackness, it's able to account for the way in which whiteness produces blackness. Um, I was thinking about the term people of colour because it's a term that I use a lot and really unthinkingly, I was just like, well, it's not politically black, so it's bless. Um, and today before the show, I was just like, you know, I'm going to have a little look at like where this term has come from. And people of colour was very much a legal category, um, part of the French colonial pro project. It was used as early as 1793. Um, interestingly, when talking about a yellow fever epidemic, so you've got this... Um, notion of people of colour and the pathogen kind of linked like from its very inception and the um, my French pronunciation is awful and I feel that if I'm going to try and do this like James Butler is going to be rolling his eyes Just somewhere give it a go give it a go oh I'm going to give it a go <laughs> I'm sorry James but uh, the French use of the term was like Jean de Colour Libres well well, you did good. Yeah, yeah. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> so that um, that was a legal category to talk about free people of colour to differentiate from enslaved Africans. So even when we try and get away from the erasure of anti-blackness within politically black, which is one of the really legitimate critiques of it, it's actually embedded in this use of language that we think of as the radical alternative. So yeah, I guess I kind of want to throw out people of colour. What do you think about it? Do you Look, use it? At the end of the day, like, we're all sat here speaking a colonial, colonised language. Like, <laughs> we need to use words in some, some way. Like, it's frustrating. It's very frustrating that the term for anybody who isn't white is shifting every four to five years. Like, I understand that it's frustrating, but, um, like, 
there's inherent frustration in ha- attempting to try and articulate our othered experiences in the language of the colonizer. We can never m- move away from that. Um, and so, yeah, it's hugely problematic. I'm going to use that term. Problematic, like <laughs> yeah, so yeah, someone's exactly. just like taking a shot out there. Right? <laughs> but it's very also interesting that it came out of France because, of course, the the French colonial project for example we can talk about the relationship between France and Algeria and how the racialized person is much paler (laughs) than the racialized um, you know person in in Britain and so that's really interesting yeah I mean of course here we're constrained by the needs of radio communication and when black people actually get together we communicate in this telepathic decolonial mm-hmm. language exactly. we, we actually uh, we've made it up see what <laughs> just exposing secrets here this is the limitations of black and brown unity because I'm like what I didn't know there was telepathy <laughs> you need to come to the AGM <laughs> but it is but it is this kind of question of There is no kind of pure, perfect mode of expression and language. That's that's the utopia that I want to win, but it doesn't exist for us. But at the same time, there is a language in who shows up, and it's not telepathic, but it's uh, a language of solidarity, I think, um, and one of being able to kind of act together in um, against this thing that we do know. I mean, there there's like all sorts of kind of questions and ambiguities about our various bits of analysis but we do know that we live in a white supremacist society um and where whiteness has been dominant and all that can be done against that is the collective action of people who um are subjugated to that whiteness and so I think like one of the reasons why I wanted to return to the like French colonial origins of that phrase was to then reflect on the um I guess, lurch towards fascism that France seems to be taking at the moment. And, you know, you do have Sarkozy really jostling with Le Pen for who can be the most reactionary and and white supremacist. Um, And I think that's reflected in the resurrection of the language of the French colonial project by saying that, like, if you are not white and you live in France, the aim is to become French. Um, The... And this is why Fanon wrote in the way that he did was because at the heart of understanding the French colonial project was understanding that like they want to strip you of your blackness, even though that very blackness is integral to the functioning of um, colonial exploitation. I guess so we don't have that much time left, but I want to throw out a provocation, um, which is not to do with Europe, but very much to do with America looking at what's been happening in Charlotte and the responses of Trump's campaign, right? So you've had two uh, fairly prominent Republicans, one saying black people are only rioting because they are jealous of white people's success. And the other was a campaign chair saying Obama invented racism. There wasn't any before him, which I thought was, you know, as presidential legacies go, that's a good one. Um, She did have to step down, however, is that The reason why Trump has been able to mobilise such momentum behind his campaign, I mean, obviously not big M momentum, but small M momentum um, behind his campaign, is in part due to some of the successes of movements like Black Lives Matter. Um, And 
this is not you have to be very careful when you say this because I don't I'm certainly not arguing that Trump hey that's the fault of Black Lives Matter which is nonsense but to say that there is that whiteness feels itself to be under attack because in mainstream American political discourse which Black Lives Matter is very effectively seized it's now being it's being called out it's being named and that's emboldened a certain kind of white supremacist to really take it and run with it I mean I don't know what do you think uh, yes, I'd agree. Uh, I mean, we all know that whiteness is super duper defensive, very unreasonable, can't recognise itself, which is why I choose to focus my work on on whiteness as that dominant force, because it's so obvious to everybody who isn't. Like, it's so obvious uh, the ways in which it, it works. And... Um, and I think like the academics, I think it's Alana Lentin and Gavin, I think Titley call it mm-hmm. white victimhood mm-hmm. in terms of how like it sort of doubles down. Um, so, yeah, and this is, it's not nice, but it's going to be a tug of war. There are going to be some people in the middle who might be like, oh, you know, I've never seen that perspective before. But most of the time it's going to be a tug of war and it isn't about gent- gently coaxing these people around to our point of view it's about who who wins the tug of war and so we have to keep opposing that sort of vicious whiteness yeah i mean i agree and the i think one of the things is that whiteness has huge kind of structures behind it that the kind of entire functioning of western states and um, capitalism is behind whiteness and gunning for it, uh, not gunning for it in like a negative sense. Like, <laughs> um, if only our listeners could see the very cheeky look on your face. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think what's also happening in movements like Black Lives Matter um, in the US and hopefully here and in other parts of the world is. building up the institutions and what's necessary for um, a future that has black lives in it um, and doing the work that's necessary um, whilst also having to participate in this tug of war but to kind of at the end of the rope be kind of building up the the things that are necessary for a new society to anchor the rope to so that the tug of war can actually be won at some point. Mm. Definitely. And uh, just really to add to that, um, in that tug of war, like we have to continually remind ourselves, and this is on that point of anti-blackness as well, that like, you know, in my research, I'm going across like documentation of slavers who literally called us black cattle. And like that is the that's literally the kernel of um, an ideology that has blossomed into opposition to Black Lives Matter. And we, we have to remember that and keep um, making the point in however we do our work, because it's different for everybody, that, you know, we're not only are we human, but we are here to stay and, you know, we're actually taking over the population, so you need to get used to us. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? <laughs> and that's the thing, is that, like, at the heart of, uh, I think, the anxieties that Trump has very effectively mobilised is a demographic one, right? Mm. Like, um, 
you know, uh, it's really funny that the descendants of white settlers are worried about being outnumbered in a country that wasn't theirs in the first place. 2066 is the year, apparently, that we take over. So, oh, like my I God. Say, so just... that's throwing, like, a massive yeah. global street party on that. So yeah. we have just got... marking it off on my calendar. We've got about a minute left. Um, you haven't said the title of your forthcoming book, and it is brilliant. Oh, yes, it's uh, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. That's the title. Oh, God, I'm so excited. <laughs> Any final thoughts very quickly, Will? Um, just that if you want to show up for Black Lives, you need to be um, in Trafalgar Square for the United Families and Friends campaign March on the 29th um, of October this year. That's an important practical thing you can do. And we'll be hyping it and tweeting it and making sure that people know about it. It's really important that you all come. Um, thank you so much for listening. Um, I've been Ash Sarkar with Rani Edu Lodge and Will Kasim. And yeah, same time, same place next week. Bye. Navarra FM is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find out more about our work, head to navarramedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and, as well as subscribing to the show, leave a review. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarra Media. Media for a different politics.